Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. I love that series. I have it downstairs in a box somewhere. 
Um, it's it's a lot of fun. It really is. I'm a big serials fan anyway. Um, if you ever watched uh, public broadcasting back in the early 1980s, you might remember a, a series that they ran. It was popular at the time called Matinee at the Bijou. Uh, it rings a bell. I don't remember very clearly, though. Uh, well, the, the, the series uh, premise was this. Um, they would run a cartoon, some travelogues, trailers for films, and then they would run uh, an episode of a serial and then their main feature, which was usually a short feature that lasted about an hour or so. The, the uh-huh. uh, series was usually – I think each episode was about a two-hour affair, and they always ran – uh, movies with public domain titles, you know, so it was pr- pretty cheap to produce for a, a PBS station uh, out of mm-hmm. Oregon. And I used to watch that as a teenager, and that's sort of my introduction to serials, really. They're, they're great, and if I remember correctly, the Kirk Allen ones, uh, uh, when he flew, there was an animation used. It was very similar to the. Uh, um, Superman cartoons that uh, had been appearing before the serials. Uh, and, and that is true. Um, and that's something that it's one of those little details that you forget about until you, you know, start watching the it serial again. itself. And, uh, you know, seeing it in high definition now, uh, I mean, it's obviously animated, um, mm-hmm. but it's done pretty well. It, it, it's yes. just done. Uh, with a level of quality involved, and I actually don't mind watching it. It it looks pretty good, and with as many negative scratches and jump cuts as there would have been in a print back in the late 40s in your typical uh, Midwestern town uh, movie theater, it might have almost looked real. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The animation uh, now, not so much, but 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 the animation's terrific. It looks great, and um, I, I became a big uh, you, a fan of uh, serials, um, you know, in the '80s when I was uh, young. And you often found that any uh, celluloid representations of superheroes in the '30s, '40s, and you know, even getting into the '50s, uh, th- those were usually done as serials. Yes. Um, I happen to have a, a fairly a large collection of uh, the serials, which I enjoy watching from time to time. And you can think of them as the precursor to television shows. That, that's a good way of looking at them, yes. And, and you know, they were very episodic, each um, depending on the running length of uh, the serial itself, each each episode was anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. Um, it almost fits into that half-hour uh, television uh, you know, framing device that, that we're familiar with now. And, um, you know, the serials were typically, if you spliced them end-to-end, were typically pretty long endeavors. They usually wound up to be about three and a half to four hours. Um, and... Uh, like I said, you're very episodic, and you're a pretty good way to introduce uh, superheroes to um, you know, uh, film audiences in the 40s and 50s. And they did make them into movies, uh, a lot of them, uh, like the Rocky Jones uh, ones. Uh, uh, they would uh, re-edit them and then uh, put them out as uh, movies. 
they would cut out the beginning uh, that led into it, and then they cut out the cliffhanger, mm-hmm. which often is leading anyway, uh, and uh, and put them out as uh, movies uh, uh, independently. And you know that happened to a lot of serials. Uh, you know, at the end of the serials run, sometimes it would get to you know um, edited, condensed, I should say, uh, down into uh, a feature. Some sometimes you know uh, the film holds up, and you know sometimes they cut a little too much out of it uh, for for the story mm-hmm. to be too linear. Um, but but that is indeed what happened uh, in, in a lot of these cases. Um, you know, uh, all of these, well, I mean, superheroes are, you know, once again popular today. And it is fun to go back and uh, revisit where they came from. Yeah, that it is. And, and how much and also how little they've changed. <laughs> I know it's a paradoxical uh, statement, but it's very true. The essence is there very powerfully, um, but uh, the presentation is often very different than what we're accustomed to today. True, and you know, uh, back when uh, the Superman serials were, were lensed in the late forties, um, they weren't bargain basement, but they weren't you know uh, big budget um, spectacles either. And and now, of course, today, you know, anything with a superhero is going to cost millions upon millions of dollars. Um, so I, that's probably the biggest change is just uh, in the, the lavish budgets uh, that we have now. But certainly the, the stories don't really change much. They're still the same, you know, conceits and plot devices, uh, you know, along those lines uh, of things. Uh, things do uh, pretty much uh, remain the same. Um but uh, you know, superheroes and especially you know uh, film serials, uh, and th- those ran from the mid '30s to the early 1950s overall. The serials kind of died with um, not not so much the advent of television, but the acceptance of television. You know, serials kind of died off by '52 or '53. Uh, but there were some really good ones out there, and a lot of different actors, you know, came up through the ranks, you know, starring in them. Um, your second one uh, was Red Brown, who we've spoken of uh, before. Uh, like uh, when we talked about your, which we share uh, a very big interest in, uh, your the hunter from the future, and uh, I've That's forgotten a little bit of Captain movie. America <laughs> appearances. Actually, his Captain America, um, you know, he's, he he made those two TV films. Yes. They're really actually a lot of fun to watch. Uh, they were done obviously before uh, your um, uh, Hunter from the Future uh, was shot, uh, but not too much long, not 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 too long before. Um, they were done, I think, seventy eight, seventy nine, somewhere around the in that uh, area. And it's obviously done, you know, as a pilot for a series that didn't get picked up, which, which is a shame because that would have been a fun series. Right. And, uh, you know, the uh, version that most of us know uh, of your Hunter from the Future is a condensed version of a much longer project. Uh, I'm right about that, correct? Yes, I learned that from you, and I looked it up. And uh, I actually, I believe, I didn't have a chance to watch it yet, but I believe I um, purchased the Bells and Whistles edition with uh, extra footage uh, that's on Blu-ray. 
You did mention that. Okay, I remember now. I'm getting old I'm, and forgetful. Um, uh, you, uh, I think Reb Brown would have been, you know, a great Captain America in a series. It's, it's a shame that uh, you know didn't get picked up. Yeah, a lot, a lot of things uh, became uh, didn't get picked up. Even uh, with uh, there was a sequel to the Steve Reeves Hercules movies uh, on television. And uh, they only shot the pilot. It didn't get picked up either. It was uh, Hercules and the Princess of Troy, or the Mighty Hercules oh. uh, cuts are, are held. And that was uh, that was a a sequel to the first uh, uh, two Hercules movies. And uh, it's a shame that didn't get picked up. That 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 was a lot of fun. The 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 pilot was a lot of fun. And uh, that was uh, that starred Gordon Scott, uh, who had yes. been. Uh, in Tarzan films in the 50s and then flipped over to, you know, Peplums in the early 60s. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a shame. A lot of things, a lot of things aren't uh, made. And uh, even today, some things that uh, you'll, you'll hear rumors of things being put together and then uh, uh, they never make it uh, through whatever process they have to go through. Um but uh, who knows? Uh, now we're able to um, film things with people who are no longer alive and replicate them fairly well. I guess uh, uh, the opportunity remains open for anybody to um, take any of these ideas and develop them further uh, with the technology that we have on hand. Uh, that's true, but you know, um, back in the old days, it, it sure was nice just to be able to, you know, <laughs> hire a cast and you know, uh, yes. run with a four-hour serial. Um, but you know, these days, you know, money is so hard to get for any project. I mean, it's it's no wonder that now, uh, you know, so many projects do go belly up and, and don't quite make it, you know, through the pre-production process. It's it's just so expensive to produce something. You know, now that that would be everything that now has to be a huge blockbuster and has to make you know um, gobs of money, and uh, I think that's another thing I like about the serials too. They, they were pretty earnest. They, they were shot um, well. Some of them uh, were shot more uh, in a thrifty manner uh, than others, but but none of them have you know great lavish budgets. And it's fun to watch them improvise. You know, yes, they can't always. You showing movement is very expensive. And you know, in the Superman serial that Columbia produced with Kirk Allen, they used animation. You know, which I'm sure you know wasn't inexpensive. You know, for them to do. Um, but it's just kind of interesting to see how they handle. You know, moving Superman around and. Uh, I think the the Kirk Allen uh, serials uh, do a pretty good job of that. Um, And they kind of continued onto the George Reeves uh, television show. Uh, They even shared a Lois Lane. Uh, uh, The Lois Lane that was in the Kirk Allen uh, series became Lois Lane in the uh, um, George Reeves uh, series uh, within a couple of seasons, if I recall correctly. That's true. Noel Neal. Yes. Um, I, uh, yeah, the uh, Superman uh, serial that uh, George Reeves uh, did is very good, but of course he's best known, you know, as the uh, the TV Superman, mm-hmm. uh, which which I believe ran for something like six seasons or so um, yeah, in the nineteen fifties. 
he made a movie too. I think uh, there was a, a George Reeves uh, Superman movie. It was the Superman against the Mole Men, I believe it was called. That's correct. Okay. Because I, I, I knew there was some sort of overlap in the movies uh, before. Yeah, the well, and, and, so. yeah and, and the movie is, um, you know, one of the things that you know, inspired the, the TV series. Because the TV series was produced uh, between, I think, 52 and 56 or 52 and 57. Uh, Superman and the Mole Men, um, that was what... Uh, I'm thinking that that was like 40. No, according to IMDb, it's 1951. So I didn't realize it was that late. One of the things that I find spooky to consider in uh, retrospect uh, is that when I was watching Superman as a child, he had already uh, died. Um, and that's something that's, that he realized yeah, for much later in life. And that that's kind of spooky, you know, growing up with a hero that, uh, um, you're watching and thinking it's live as a kid, and then realizing no, it's not live. You know, this is a, a posthumous performance. Well, the the producers of uh, the George Reeves Superman um, television show did something really smart that was rare uh, back then. Uh, I believe after the first or second season, um, they started. Uh, shooting all of the episodes in color, even though you know, very, very few uh, people had a color television set. And that kept um, those reruns uh, more viable longer because they were shot in color instead of black and white. They stayed on longer. I didn't have a color TV until much, much later, so I watched them in black and white anyway. But, yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and, and it's a shame you didn't have a color TV, um, but that did um, make them more viable as a rerun because they were in color. Um, you know, for whatever reason, they keep telling us that people don't like to watch black and white. It, well, it doesn't bother some of us, uh, but it, maybe no, it, it does it bother other people. It was just the way things were. You know, the TV was black and white, and uh, the images were black and white, and uh, – um, so that's how they were enjoyed. I don't think we had a color TV until much, much uh, later, uh, maybe my teen years. Mm. I, I can, uh, I wouldn't swear to when we got one. I would say probably 67, 68, something like that. I was, I was a little kid. I remember watching like cartoons in color. So on oh, okay. the three channels that you got. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And that was a lot. That, yeah, it was. And even at that, you know, uh, even when you know uh, color did come into vogue in the mid '60s, there were still some uh, programs that were shot in black and white. Some of the less expensive stuff, and certainly the local or regional programs, mm-hmm. were probably still being shot in black and white at the time. But that, anyway, that, that's what kept uh, you know George Reeves, I think, at the forefront of uh, you. I mean, he, he passed away you know, almost 60 years ago, yet so many people still remember who he was, even though he was never really a big star. No? And I think – no, not really. And I, and I think that, that that's one of the reasons uh, that we still remember him is that those reruns were in color and uh, they were – you know, they lasted longer than you know, some of the old black and white reruns did. 
Um, it, it's interesting that they brought Superman keeps coming back. Uh, Smallville lasted for uh, a decade or so, and before then, the adventures of uh, Lois and Clark that went on for I think four mm-hmm. or five years too so and superman's now back in the arrowverse so he's on supergirl's show primarily that's very true and you know it, it is a character that um has been around now for what about a little over 80 years and uh it, it's hard to keep uh, superman as a superhero down <laughs> uh, he's uh, still very popular um now i remember uh watching um Buster Crab uh, in his uh, serials, he uh, portrayed Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers in the late Rogers, 1930s. Yes. And those had a really neat uh, science fiction look about the sets. I thought they did a really good job um, on those sets. And, and that's one that they must have spent. I mean, it would still wouldn't have been an A picture or anything like that, but they must have had a more la- lavish budget. Uh, for those Buster Crab serials, because they looked really good in an era when there just wasn't a lot of money around since they were shot in the mid to late 1930s. Right. They they, they look phenomenal. And I, I used to have the, um, uh, I still have the Flash Gordons, um, but I don't mm-hmm. believe I have the other ones anymore. Uh, and uh, I watched them from time to time. Uh, they, they were really, really good. And uh, when they made the first uh, modern Flash Gordon movie, uh, a lot of it uh, was a homage to those uh, Buster Crab serials. And you know what? I I watched um, uh, the Flash Gordon, oh, what was that, from like 78, 79, 80. I watched that about six months ago, and... I wasn't expecting to get sucked into it, and I wound up watching the whole thing. And you're right. It, it does play very much like a 30s or 40s serial. And like I said, it just drew me right in, and I couldn't turn it off until it was done. It was a lot of fun to watch. Oh, it was a lot of fun to watch. And uh, the actors were awesome, and uh, um, the, the music by Queen was awesome. It was just an awesome mm-hmm. experience. And they were going to make more of them, too, but uh, that kind of fell apart uh, uh, after that. And I believe the voice they used wasn't even of the actor who uh, uh, played Flash Gordon. Uh, he had walked off uh, the set, and they had to uh, uh, basically uh, re-record his lines. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I just read an article uh, about uh, about that recently. Can't tell you where. Hmm. It's all a blur, but I know that I, I got some new information on it. And they talked about that. Yeah, I know what you mean about it being a blur. <laughs> um, well, um, one thing that I really appreciate about the um, you know, the superhero serials and the science fiction serials is that a lot of the actors who portrayed the protagonists uh, actually did a lot of westerns. I mean, if you go through, at least on my superhero page, and if you look down, I mean, Buster Crab had been in a lot of westerns in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Crash Corrigan, you know, he started out as a superhero of sorts in Undersea Kingdom you know, in the 1930s. And he went on to, you know, pretty spectacular uh, Westerns career. Um, Kane Richmond, you know, from the 40s, I mean, he starred in probably more serials than anybody else. I mean, he 
starred in a number of them. And he'd been in some, uh, you know, a few, a few Westerns here and there. And that getting down to Tom Tyler, uh, who was really well known in Westerns, um, actually got kind of a second wind, you know, for his career in the early forties and starred as Captain Marvel in the Phantom. Mm-hmm. And th- those turns for him, um, you know, might have led to something else, but, uh, he was diagnosed with uh, rheumatoid arthritis while he was still a fairly young man. I think he was in his early 40s, and it wrecked his career. He couldn't do, you know, the the, the physical. Um, he couldn't handle the physicality of you know being in a western or being an action hero, and he died uh, very young. He was about 50 or so when he passed away. That's a shame. Uh, it was, uh, and it, it uh, torpedoed a career that had, I don't think Tom Tyler had ever made very much money, but he was an extremely busy actor. You know, for what his uh, paycheck might have lacked, I think he you know, made up for, you know, j- just in working so much and in doing so many films. It's amazing that they, that they didn't make a lot of money because uh, – um, well, you find that a lot in entertainment. Uh, a lot of uh, things uh, that you believed uh, uh, earlier on would earn a lot of money for the people doing them, they actually you know, don't or they didn't. Uh, and uh, uh, that a lot of the productions, as you mentioned earlier, uh, didn't make any money, and uh, that's why they didn't continue. So it, it, it's really amazing. Most people have the impression that if you're uh, even remotely involved in uh, um, entertainment, you're going to be very well off. You know, I, I found that uh, you know, and I, pro- I probably was guilty of thinking that at one time as well. I mean, the the people who really clean up are the producers, the ones who end up owning the property. If you own the property, then you know you can make money in perpetuity. But uh, otherwise, if you're the star of it, unless you've got a fantastic contract, you're probably not going to see a penny. You know, after uh, right. after the after you were paid, after the film was made, even if you get residuals residuals are usually based on you know profits uh down the road and creative accounting can always wipe things like that out um but but indeed a lot of these people were just trying to you know uh provide for their families put food on the table and this is how they did it and you know if they had a you know a, a I mean, they lived in Southern California, probably in nicer homes than your average Joe working in a factory. Um, but they also didn't have uh, any safety net. They didn't have any. There was no union or anything behind them that that could be, you know, of great help to them. And some of them, I mean, like Tom Tyler, for example, did die in poverty because he couldn't work. Right. I think he wound up. Uh, he wound up back in uh, the Detroit area, you know, living with his sister until he passed away. It's pretty sad. And that that is pretty sad, and uh, unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to end today's uh, journey together. Uh, but it's been it's been. I'm looking forward to continuing this journey, and unfortunately, we have still a lot we haven't covered on your uh, science. Uh, um, your superhero science fiction uh, pages. So uh, I'm looking forward to the journey uh, continuing. Um, I I was fortunate when I had my TV show uh, and I was making my movie to interview um, the um, uh, the stop motion uh, person. Now I'm drawing a blank on his name. It was just in my Ray Harryhausen. 
Ray Harryhausen, yes. And uh, part of that interview is actually on YouTube. Somebody put it uh, there. Um, But he also, you know, I asked him what would he do differently. uh, And he said he'd learn how to handle money. So I suspect uh, he didn't uh, uh, really get paid a lot of money for all the magic that he did on screen uh, either. Oh, no, I'm sure. I'm sure he didn't. Um, But uh, it was. His effort has been much appreciated. <laughs> At least yeah. he left a legacy behind. And not not too many people get to do that, no matter what it was that they earned in life. And I remember I was impressed because after I interviewed him, somebody had come from like uh, the Lucas uh, uh, ranch, and they were flying him out there. <laughs> so that was like, uh, well, hey, that's it. Yeah, that's, yeah he's like, still you know running a good grateful. company. So yeah, I was grateful that he took the time to speak with me before being flown away to California. So um, thank you very much, Brian. How can people enter the world of Brian's Drive-In Theater? Well, you can find me on the web at briansdriveintheater.com. Uh, also, uh, if you want to uh, you know, check out uh, my social media presence, uh, you can do that on Facebook. Uh, just go to facebook.com and search for Brian's Drive-In Theater and you'll find me. And uh, I have links for those of you who are on uh, Facebook. I've, I've just become aware uh, that uh, um, people actually uh, go to Facebook because I post links as we're talking and beforehand and afterwards. And uh, I've been told by many people that they, uh, that they follow that and that they actually explore the links. So if anyone is on Facebook, there are links uh, to Brian and his driving theater um, from yesterday, today, and uh, so uh, um, uh, please visit. He's an awesome individual, and he has an awesome uh, presence on social media, and he has a phenomenally awesome uh, website that I've been a fan of for uh, decades. So uh, thanks again. Um, Happy New Year, and I will talk to you very soon. Okay, talk to you okay, soon. To you Thank, you. You. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. And uh, we're not going to take a music uh, break, but we will go directly to Nicholas Dyack, Scholar from the Edge of Time. And today what we're going to speak about is Xena, Army of Darkness crossovers. Greetings and welcome. How are you, Nicholas? Good evening, Hercules. Doing very well. I hope you're doing well, too. I'm doing phenomenal. Um, a little, uh, I, I've been like so busy that things are kind of slipping my my mind. So uh, um, if I become forgetful during today's uh, board class, uh, please forgive me. Um, I am not surprised to uh, find out that you too are a fan of your. Um, we've spent with Brian uh, many a show uh, wind up talking about your so can you share your passion of your before we go to Zena and uh, Ash oh absolutely I can share a couple things about your um, the okay. first is uh, I discovered the film when I was working on my master's thesis on uh, Antonio Margaretti who uh, directed mm-hmm. your <clears throat> so oh, at the awesome. time I was collecting yeah I, I was collecting every single Margaretti film I could get my paws on and I wound up importing like um a German DVD and an old VHS copy of your that I took to the university library to uh, convert. And uh, I loved it. And then um, a couple years uh, after that, so late 2000s, maybe early to 2010s, um, mm-hmm. Michelle and I went to an autograph convention, uh, a little celebrity autograph convention down here in SoCal. And uh, Red Brown was there. And wow. uh, 
Uh, you know, I took my copy of Your there. I took my copy of Space Mutiny and Mystery Science Theater 3000 because he was in that. And he was, uh-huh. he was so, like, um, gregarious and excited. He was telling us stories about filming Your, like uh, how, um, oh, what's the, uh, uh, the short guy's name? Uh, Alan Collins was, uh, he and uh, Alan Collins were always kind of playing pranks on people and, uh, they got along very well, and he, he just loved making uh, Yor, and uh, he, he was just a big giant. Uh, you know, he's a little older. He was still super buff, and he was oh, wow. Michelle and I, and uh, I have a picture of all of us somewhere, so I'll have to send that to you a little bit later of us meeting Red Brown. Wow. Uh, when you find that, yeah, I'd like to, to see it very much. No, I'll, I'll find it right after the show. Uh, I have a you know, I keep all my uh, photos, you know, all nice and organized, just going and finding out, you know, where it is. So, oh, yeah, I'll definitely share it. He was uh, he was so cool. Oh, okay, one other thing about Red Brown. Uh, so okay. It's not about Yor, but he did a, a movie called uh, Strike Commando, which was kind of a, a post-Rambo knockoff. And, and this wasn't by Margaretti. It's by another Italian director, um, Bruno Mattai, I believe. And there's a okay. scene in this film where, you know, Red Brown, he's playing a Rambo-type character. He's, he's running through this field, and all of a sudden this soldier jumps out of nowhere, and Red Brown's character's like, oh, shit, and he clocks this guy. <laughs> and Michelle and I double laughing because we're like, that was not a planned scene. They totally caught him off guard with that. And so we brought that up with Red. Hey, what happened to this scene? And he, he busted up laughing, saying that's exactly what happened. The director had surprised him by having this guy jump up out of the grass to surprise him. He just decked him, and you know, it was in the final cut of the film. It was just a glorious, funny uh, scene in this uh, macaroni combat film. Oh, very cool. Maybe, maybe there'll be an Army of Darkness your crossover one day. Why not? You know, uh, it's a character. It, it comes from, uh, you know, Italian fumetti comics. Uh-huh. Uh, um no, it's, it's never. It's one of those series that just never got really explored. I mean, there was that period where, um, you know, shortly after the Euro spy films had happened, that the Italians were turning a couple of their fumettis into films. You know, that's where you got Barbarella from. That's where you got Satani yeah. uh, from. But it was so short-lived um, that. It would be nice to see people that go back and revisit those uh, comics into, you know, film form, TV form, crossovers, make them public to me for other people to work with. Barbarella, they actually brought her back. Uh, the same folks, uh, Dynamite, I believe, who put out uh, Red Sonia and Xena. Uh, um, I believe they also have a Barbarella comic out uh, as well. Nope, you are correct. It came out, I think, late last year. I picked up the first issue because it's Barbarella and it's an awesome cover, but I have not read uh-huh. it yet. So I, I look forward to your feedback. Uh, Cause uh, um, I, I'm trying to keep on top of some of the comics and it's, there's just way too many of them that are, are interesting. So I'm, I'm not doing very well in keeping up with them. Uh, same boat. Uh, we, we, our comic book store that we used to go to closed a couple years ago and, so we don't have a steady uh, flow of comics anymore. So we just wait till we go to comic book conventions and find out what's there. But that has the uh-huh. side effect of we're always, you know, months behind what might be cool or popular or worth investigating. 
it's good that um, they're coming out now uh, fairly quickly in graphic novel form. Yes, I, I have found what usually happens is I find out about a series long after it ended, but there's a trade paperback collection that you can scoop right. up for like 15 has everything in it, and you're good to go. Uh, and so if I don't, if I miss out on something in its first run, I love getting the trade paperbacks. And a lot of times those trade paperbacks also has additional, like, uh, creator uh, essays and forwards in it, which are fun to read. Yeah, they are fun to read. A lot of times they'll have all the alternate covers, like uh, Conan came back, and I'm a big uh, Conan fan. Um, and uh, um, I I went to the comic book store, uh, and uh, I called them nest and put aside like a Conan, and there were so many different covers. And then what they did was they put Conan on the cover of like the Fantastic Four and Captain America and Iron Man and the Avengers, um, so it would have cost you like a hundred dollars just to uh, have all of these uh, issue number ones and uh, and lead-ins. So I decided to pass on it because I figured that uh, um, when the graphic novel came out, uh, the trade paperback, uh, that they would have a lot of this stuff in it. So uh, it would take up less space, and uh, I wouldn't have to put things in bags and boxes. And so anyway, I passed on it, uh, even though I'm a big uh, Conan aficionado. No, no, it's not a bad idea because, one, Dynamite, the company Dynamite, is notorious for doing, especially for their first issues, lots and lots and lots of incentive covers. But sometimes for a lot of their titles, uh, not in the trade paperback forms, but what they'll do is they'll actually do a collection of just the covers. In fact, they did release a of Thoris uh, compendium that it has none of the comics in it, but it has all the covers of the originals and the uh, incentive covers all collected in one giant omnibus, and it roughly goes for the same price. And so some of those series do get their covers collected by themselves, and that's a nice way to go as well. Uh, the second thing that people do is um, they get blank covers. A lot of these comics have yes. no cover on it. This is the logo of the series, and what people do is they buy the blank covers and take them to conventions and commission artists to do covers. And I'm not ashamed to admit, I've done that a couple times. Uh, I have some Army of Darkness blank covers that I've commissioned people to uh, work on, and they come out amazing. Um, In fact, a a different series that came out long after Army of Darkness Nina was uh, called Ash Gets Hitched. And it's where Ash gets married, and it had a blank cover. And I had a friend do a, a cover for it, and all he did was he, he drew a picture of, you know, Ash getting married. It had all these horror villains on it, including, you know, like Hellraiser and Maniac Cop. And it was a phenomenal piece. And I'll have to share that with you, too. Yeah, I'd love to see a picture of that. And uh, uh, tonight's topic, which you uh, just introduced, I, I saw the uh, uh, PM that you sent out on uh, – um, Facebook is uh, um, the Xena Army of Darkness uh, crossovers, and uh, uh, those were pretty amazing. Uh, the folks who bought you Hercules Legendary Journeys and uh, Xena are the same folks who bought us uh, uh, the Evil Dead and Army of uh, Darkness. Uh, and there, there are crossovers within the shows beyond these comics, but these comics were all phenomenally uh, excellent. So why don't you start uh, uh, taking us on a tour of those adventures? 
All right. So there's a couple things to start off with is um, the Army of Darkness comic book series has been going on since like 2004. It has been Mm -hmm. a long run, and there are many crossovers with it. There's Army of Darkness Xena, Army of Darkness Darkman, which, again, ties into Renaissance Pictures, who gave us Army of Darkness, Evil Xena, Hercules, Um, Army of Darkness um, versus Marvel Zombies. Army of Darkness meets uh, Barack Obama. There is that series as well. Army of Darkness and Ash, uh, uh, Ash versus Jason versus Freddy. So they have uh, been doing crossovers of Army of Darkness for a very, very long time. And the kind of the, the thing that's amusing about the Army of Darkness series is is how fluid it is that it leads to adaptation and uh, usage in other medium. Basically, at the end of Army of Darkness, you're set up with a hero that can time travel. Uh, most right. of the time, you know, through the Necronomicon, it's basically, as story dictates, you just toss Ash, you know, through a, a spell through the Necronomicon, and he can wind up anywhere. So it opens up endless storytelling possibilities. And that's kind of what Army of Darkness Zuna takes uh, advantage of. Is um, So... So there's actually three series of Army of Darkness and Xena, and I think we're talking about just the first one tonight. And, yeah. uh, you know, it starts by, you know, there's that one scene in the original uh, Army of Darkness film where, you know, Ash looks at his mirror reflection, shatters it, and all these little ashes run around. Well, mm-hmm. the catalyst of this, you know, one of those ashes doesn't get squashed. He reaches into his backpack and has a little miniature Necronomicon, reads from it, and he's teleported to the Xena Hercules universe where he overtakes a, a fairy kingdom. And then, uh, you know, cut to the present time, the old, wise old man under King Arthur's employ brings Ash back to uh, the past, even before the events of Army of Darkness to, you know, Xena and Hercules time to basically put this, you know, uh, wrong to right. Uh, he meets up with uh, uh, Xena and Gabriel. Now, the, the best way to understand this comic is to realize that uh, the big linkage between Army of Darkness and Xena is, of course, uh, Bruce Campbell, who plays characters in both series. Yes, um, Autolycus, mostly. Exactly. He plays Autolycus in Xena and Hercules, but he also plays Ash in Army of Darkness. And because, let's be honest, I, I love Bruce Campbell, but in everything he's in, he's playing Bruce Campbell. He's playing himself. Right. And so two characters are so interchangeable that within the comic of Army Darkness and Xena, that's where a lot of the comedy is derived from, is people mistaking Ash for Autolycus and Autolycus for Ash. And so that's kind of the gist of the story is Ash, after, you know, getting into some fights with Xena and Gabrielle, uh, teams up with them to stop the miniature version of himself. Um, It's, it's fun it's quite clever at times. And I think, you know, the most appreciation you can get from it is being a fan of the whole Robert Tapper Renaissance Pictures universe, which would be Army Darkness, Evil Dead, Hercules, and Xena. So that we can see kind of the interplay of how interchangeable these characters are, how much Ash is Autolycus and Autolycus is Ash. Uh, in fact, if there's anything that the, the series is missing is... It needed Ted Raimi in there because Ted Raimi is in both series. So that would have been an an extra, you know, source of comedy. Um, I do want to say one thing, though, that's not 
quite well known is the first three issues of Army of Darkness Zena says it's written by John Lehman. That's wrong. It's actually written by Brandon Jurwa. Um, How did they make this mistake, but, or why did they make this mistake? It's, I don't think it's really a mistake, per se. So, back in Washington, I used to go to the Emerald City Comic Book Convention, and uh, I'd been collecting Army of Darkness for years at this point, and... Um, you know, I looked at the guest list, and, um, you know, John Lehman was there in attendance. I'm like, oh, sweet, I'm going to take my Army of Darkness Zena comics for him to sign. And uh, I did. I, I handed it to him. Hey, could you sign these? And he said, I didn't actually write these. Uh, if I recall, he was actually asked to write them, and he passed, but Dynamite kind of left his name on them. Mm. So I asked, well, who did write them? Well, he says, Brandon Jerwa did, who was like a table over. And I'd met Brandon Jura before because he's, he's done other work with uh, Army of Darkness and Dynamite. He wrote a whole bunch of Highlander comics. And so, uh-huh. you know, I took it over to him and, yeah, he signed him just fine. So so for all your listeners out there, uh, there's a little, uh, you know, I guess a, a secret. You know, the writer for these is really Brandon Jura. And, uh, and now it is known and revealed throughout the land. <laughs> it is. It is. That is awesome. No, keep going. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, going through my notes. I scribbled a whole bunch of notes. Oh, okay. It. okay. Yeah, that, that is All a right. neat little uh, mystery and a neat little uh, thing to know. You have a piece of trivia for the for the comic series. Um, I I remember that uh, the um, Hercules series, and I believe it's last season had a uh, reference to the Necronomicon and to, uh, um, you know, the, the whole universe of, of uh, Ash. Uh, it wasn't very, like, no extra attention was focused on it, but if you're familiar with uh, the Evil Dead in the Army of Darkness, uh, it resonated and uh, you got, you know, to laugh at the uh, Easter egg uh, in the episode. And uh, I, I, I remember, I go ahead. I was going to say, I believe that, I, I, I'm not familiar with the reference, but I am familiar with, you know, uh, uh, Tappert would fill a lot of his stuff with Easter eggs. You know, there's the, uh, the infamous, you know, Evil Dead 2 has Easter eggs to the Nightmare on Elm Street films. And, um, you know, Army of Darkness also has uh, Easter eggs, uh, like in the back of the trunk of the car to other things. So I would not be surprised that, Hey, you know, let's let's throw some intertextual Easter eggs across our own IPs within our own show. <laughs> and uh, I think I shared this with you. I in researching, I discovered that there was supposed to be uh, um, a crossover between Jason and the evil, uh, 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 the Army of Darkness, um, and it didn't get made. Uh, and this was before they made uh, Jason uh, versus Freddy. And uh, um, the Necronomicon and the dagger uh, from Army of Darkness appear in one of the Jason movies. I don't remember if it was Jason X or Jason Goes to Hell or if those were even the same movie. It's been a while since I've watched those. Um, but uh, I, 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 I think Goes to Hell, the Friday, uh, the final Friday. Okay. I believe. I think you're correct. Because that, that's, that's what started it all was uh, – it's sort of like a, at the end of Predator 2, they showed a xenomorph skeleton in the ship. Right, right, right. They're like, oh, my God, Predator and aliens are in the same universe. 
that's what happened at the end of the first run of Friday the 13th films was there was like a, a reference to, to Freddy Krueger and Evil Dead. And they're like, oh, my God, everything's in the same universe. Yeah, that, that is cool. I, I like when things are in the same universe when they cross over. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy those type of uh, stories. You know, one other thing to point out that I think is a, an, a subtle Easter egg is in issue four of Army of Darkness Luna, um, uh, after the little Ash is commanding his army of fairies to, you know, attack the castle, um, it shows a scene of, you know, him uh, being dragged by two fairy ladies, you know, like a, like a Santa Claus type fashion. Uh, and one of the fairy ladies looks exactly like Red Sonia. She's got the Red Sonia bikini chainmail, the long red hair. It's just that she's got kind of wasp wings instead. So, and of course, Dynamite puts out the Red Sonia comic. Red so Sonia, yeah. Yeah, I think it was a subtle Red Sonia Easter egg as well. I'm surprised uh, that uh, they haven't done a. Uh, Army of Darkness, uh, Red Sonja crossover, because Red Sonja travels through time as well, so that wouldn't be that difficult to, to do. You know, I want to, I know that they did a uh, Army of Darkness Vampira crossover, I Yes, yes. I haven't read it, but I heard about it. So, no, the universe really lends itself to lots of crossovers. <laughs> and, you yes, know, sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it is a little hackneyed because a lot of the stories start exactly the same. Ash is working at S-Mart. There's some deadites mm-hmm. everywhere. He takes them all off. He goes. So sometimes it's done pretty good. Sometimes it's kind of a little bit of a yawn fest. Um, it's right. amazing how much the Darkness comics have been rebooted, reincorporated. And the other funny thing to realize is, these comics all take place after the Army of Darkness film. In a weird sort right. of way, you know, they continue that canon. And so when you have the Ash versus Evil Dead TV series coming out, you have kind of like two Ashes happening at the same time, kind of an, an older Ash, you know, because, you know, Army of Darkness is, what, 93? So we're looking at 25 years later versus this Ash that's in the comics has been perpetually like the same age, acting, you know, uh, the same way, so it's kind of interesting, and they're compatible to each other because through all these comics, there's different iterations of Ash running around. Just because that's just how it is. I mean, we saw not in this series. You'll see in the next series of Army of Darkness, Zena. There's multiple Zenas and Gabriels as well. Yes, it's, yes, and it, it can be kind of and... weird in a Back to the Future type fashion, but it's kind of fun as well. Yeah, it, it is fun, and uh, again, you're talking about different timelines, uh, um, so there could be all of these different uh, uh, versions in a multiverse rather than in a, a universe. Um, I have I have actually purchased the uh, uh, the series, but I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. You know, side note, you said uh, about a multiverse. I haven't read it, but I believe about eight years ago. Dynamite did do a giant universe crossover where they brought all their IPs together to like stop like a Mayan 2012 into the world type thing. But hmm. I don't remember what it was called, but I think it had Red Sonia, Army of Darkness, Reanimator, and a whole bunch of other characters. And 
this happened uh, like a, in the early 2010s where they did. They took all their IP and brought them together into one giant epic story. Wow, I have to find that. If you find what it's called, let me know. See if I can check down a copy on uh, Amazon or something. I, I will. Uh, uh, last year I did a presentation at my Ann Radcliffe Academic Conference on the Dynamite Reanimator comics. And as I was researching that, that's how I found out, wait a second, there's this whole uh, slew of Reanimator comics that are part of this giant Dynamite crossover. So I'll just go find my old notes, and uh, I'll tell you what those are. Okay. But I was quite as impressed how there's basically a Dynamite multiverse. Oh, that is awesome. Now I have even more things to, to read. <laughs> Thank you, Nicholas. <laughs> Well, uh, this would make an awesome role-playing game. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, no, the, I, I love uh, using multiverses in uh, role-playing games as well. So this, I, I'm just imagining the potential for a role-playing game uh, in the Xena Hercules, uh, um, Young Hercules, Army of Darkness, Darkman, uh, Hyborian Age. You know, just basically tying everything together uh, through the time travel uh, with a Necronomicon, and that would make an awesome uh, campaign. And, and don't forget to throw in Cleopatra 2525. I love that show. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about it in years, but, but but I used to love that show. I used to watch it all the time. Wow. Wow. Well, I was going to say, we're at the top of the hour, so... Uh, is there anything else I should, like, wrap up? Because I want to make sure I don't monopolize your time for the next guest. No, you're, you're, you, are, you actually have a few minutes. Uh, I guess share with okay. people how they can, you know, enter your world and find out all the awesome things you're doing. Because you're an author, you're an editor, you uh, speak at comic book panels, you uh, review all sorts of things, you're involved in a lot of creative uh, uh, projects hither and yon, you're a scholar, uh, so you're a really interesting person. How can somebody enter your world and find out more about you uh, and explore all the creativity that you've been generously sharing with us. Sure. So I'm found at nickdiak.com, N-I-C-K-D-I-A-K.com. From there, I keep all my news of what projects I'm working on, appearances at conventions, uh, uh, and there's links to all my social media there. Uh, I just received news earlier today that a short story I wrote got accepted to a uh, anthology. So, when I can review more details on that, I'll have to share that with you. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'll, I'm finishing up our horror anthology book and moving on to uh, whatever the big next project is. There's quite a few of them. Um, well, good. And uh, I, am, uh, I am trying to budget my time for the coming year. And... Uh, uh, there are a few people, a handful of people I would like to do something creatively with, and you and uh, Michelle are definitely uh, on that list. So uh, at some point in the next uh, few weeks, um, I will send over like a personal message or an email, and we can start uh, dreaming. And uh, I, I would very much like to do something with both of you this uh, year because uh, you're incredibly awesome. Oh, we would definitely look forward to that. Uh, I know that we've talked about a whole bunch of other projects, so you know we would definitely love to be on board for sure. 
fantastic. Uh, maybe we can find a way of uh, bridging all these multiverses into a creative story, maybe in Star Trek or something, uh, since we're doing something uh, there as well. Uh, so you've given me a lot to dream about, Nicholas. So thank you very much. Happy New Year to you, to Michelle, and to all of your friends and loved ones. And I look forward to our next uh, interaction. Absolutely. We'll uh, probably talk uh, not this month, the next month. Uh, thank you very much for having me on the show to talk about Xena and Hercules. We've got some more comics to talk about for sure. I'm looking forward to it, and thank you for being on. Uh, We're going to listen to Bone Poets Orchestra's Evolve, uh, one of my favorite songs in the catalog of songs uh, they have here on the side. Uh, And then we'll be back with Bill Hinburn and Super Strength Training as we move forward and explore ways to build a mythic physique.
today's show, uh, which I'm calling Mythic Physique, and we will continue our conversation with Bill Hinburn, legendary founder of Super Strength Training. Greetings and welcome back, and Happy New Year, Bill. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for asking, and Happy New Year to you and your family. Thank you very much. I'm very excited uh, to be continuing our conversation today and to be straying to the waters of uh, the power of the mind and uh, muscle control. Uh, and I'm looking forward to whatever wisdom you have uh, to impart on that. Okay. I'm ready okay. when you are. Okay, great. Um, I've always believed in uh, training the mind as well as uh, the body. And uh, for years I've been uh, meditating. I've been visualizing. I've been uh, saying affirmations. I've been doing all sorts of things, uh, working with my dreams and so forth. And I find those of much uh, benefit. But as I get older and I cannot lift weights as heavy as I once lifted or as often uh, as I once uh, lifted, I'm finding that I'm getting a lot more um, a- enjoyment out of doing things like uh, the Charles Atlas course or doing things like isometrics uh, with or without weights and also with uh, uh, doing what uh, mind-body exercises I've I've kind of uh, picked up. And in my research, uh, mostly through your site, um, I've discovered that many uh, people have written uh, a lot on this uh, topic. Uh, So since uh, that's where you live, (laughs) I figured I would go straight uh, um, to – the person who would know the most about it and ask uh, what uh, can be taught um, or, you know, um, as a lead in to reading these books. Well, it's, uh, it's a phenomenon that isn't, uh, isn't new. Uh, it goes back to, I would have to say early 20th century, around 1910, uh, a gentleman by the name of Max Sick, his stage name became Mazik. M-A-X-I-C-K, wrote a book called, what else? Muscle Control. Muscle Control. Yeah, Muscle Control uh, or Body Development by Willpower. That's the title. And um, it's an interesting book. It was hardcover, 110 pages, and uh, 54 uh, full-page uh, photographs of himself, most of them, nearly all, are of him, uh, illustrating the uh, the controls. He was an interesting man. Uh, not only uh, could he do the muscle control, but consider the fact that uh, he was an expert strongman, gymnast, mm-hmm. uh, hand balancer, and muscle control specialist. He was Swiss-Austrian, and he stood a towering five foot four and weighed right around 
145 pounds. But he had a 40-inch chest, expanded 45-inch, biceps 15 and a half, forearm 13, thigh 23. And uh, uh, one feat that he accomplished, uh, he was third in the world to elevate over double body weight when he did wow. 322 and a half pounds at, uh, again, 145 pounds. And this book was very, very uh, instrumental in getting a lot of different people um, uh, interested in in, uh, in uh, doing this. Uh, it was published in uh, England. It was a hardback, like I say. And, of mm-hmm. course, it, uh, it had the basic... Uh, you know, he was a sickly young man and, you know, stuff like that to get everybody's attention, to make everybody feel as though, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Which was, as you can see, it's a common thread through a lot right. of the, uh, uh, the training systems. Now, I'm not saying that he did not have these problems. I'm not implying that at all. But you'll notice that many of the uh, muscles by male barons, as I like to call them, in the early uh, 20th century, did this. George F. Jowett, uh, of course, Charles Atlas, the 97-pound weakling, got sand yes. in his face and stuff like that. Who knows? It doesn't matter. And the fact of the matter is, he's presenting, uh, in in Mazik's case, a, a method that he claimed helped him. Uh, right. Now, he does not say, he had never said, that this was the only thing he did to to develop his physique. Other people, uh, his um, advertising uh, uh, agents and stuff said that, okay? But, of course, he never said it because he he actually wrote another book called Great Strength Through Muscle Control in which he uses, uh, he has several illustrations of him, uh, you know, lifting weights. Mm -hmm. And again, he was uh, he was a very strong man, but he influenced other people. Uh, one of my very favorites is a gentleman by the name of uh, Otto Arco. That's his stage name. His, his uh, given name is Otto Nowosiski, and uh, he was born in Europe, Poland, predominant, uh, I believe, specifically. Uh, he weighed 138 pounds and at a height of only five foot two. He was a champion wrestler of Australia in 1903. A master showman, a poser, weight juggler, hand balancer, gymnast, bodybuilder, uh, weightlifter, as well as an expert muscle control artist. Now, while I do not have any film of uh, Mazik, okay, I wish I did. That would be awesome. You know, that would, if one ever popped up, I would, uh, I would be thrilled. There is a film professionally done about Oracle. Okay. And if you search the internet, you can find it. Just plug in Otto Arco, A R C O and uh it will pop up and it's uh, it has uh, uh the uh subtitles are in Polish. But he and his brother had a uh, a uh, hand balancing uh act and uh, uh and they went on the road to vaudeville and stuff like that. But this has uh, his uh, uh, hand balancing with his brother as well as his muscle control. And it is just, it's phenomenal the way he does it. But he, he was a professional. He earned his, 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 
he he earned his living with his muscles. Um, he was one of the first three men to press double body weight overhead, and uh, as well as uh, Mazik did. He was featured in Ripley's Believe It or Not, and he appeared in prominent magazine covers of the day. Uh, so you have two people right there. I have several others. I don't know if you want me to continue, but... Oh, sure. The more I can learn and the more our audience can learn about uh, this fascinating uh, um, subsection of uh, physical culture, uh, the better it'll be. Well, I would like to see it become more and more uh, uh, prevalent. As would I. Like I say, uh, uh, I've got a list here of what, about 20 people, uh, 15 or 20 people, who have... Uh, who have done this and we're very good at it. Um, um, I think it would be something to behold because it's not that difficult to learn. And it's like, you know, it's like riding a bicycle once learned, you know, you might go back at it and it might be a little rusty, but you'll pick up on it that much quicker. Mm-hmm. Walt Baptiste was, was, was another man. Uh, he was a magazine publisher, a bodybuilder, a gym owner and a yoga expert. And, uh, lived out in San Francisco, and uh, he wrote a little booklet, uh, Muscle Control, and he had a lot of illustrations and what have you. I used to sell the magazine, or the uh, course, but now it's out of print. Mm. But it, it goes into great detail, once again, just like the uh, Mezic book. Um, another gentleman that was uh, a writer and uh, a strong man, old-time strong man, was a gentleman by the name of Otley Coulter. And he uh, he wrote for Alan Calvert's Strength Magazine of the early 19th century. And uh, I knew him back in the early 70s. He passed away around, I think it was 1976, if I'm not mistaken. A real nice guy. He was, he was awesome. He lived in Pennsylvania and uh, had a huge collection of all the stuff because he went on his travels and stuff. Uh, he connected with a lot of people, and he kept everything. You know, he's one of those pack rat type peoples. I don't know anything uh-huh. like that to you, <laughs> but uh, myself. <laughs> but uh, uh, me too. But anyway, he uh, 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 he did a lot of uh, uh, muscle control and what have you. Now, somebody that you've probably heard of, especially through the social media on occasion, I've mentioned his name. He was a good friend of Reg Park. His name is Marvin Eater, and uh, his nickname was the Biceps from the Bronx. He was the the third man and second bodybuilder in the world to bench press 500 pounds at a body weight of, get this, 198 pounds. Wow. And he was the first man ever to do it weighing less than 200 pounds. The other two people, naturally, are uh, Doug Hepburn and uh, Reg Park, and they both weighed over 200 pounds. But more importantly, Marvin could dip with 450 pounds. He wow. did sets of, uh, sets of 10 with squats with over 500 pounds. He could do 80 straight chin-ups. He could do 1,000 parallel dips in 17 minutes. And a hundred pound dumbbell crucifixes to the sides. Each bell was a hundred pounds. Wow. Yeah, wow was right. And uh 
But today he's, I believe he's in his 80s. I'm not mistaken, he's still alive. And he only does a hundred, he only does, I'm I'm sorry, he only does 500 crunches every morning. That's all? Yeah, yeah, really. (laughs) And up until recently, he had been doing dips with 70 pounds attached and curls with 35-pound dumbbells. Wow. Uh, He was an interesting man. Uh, Here's another guy. In fact, I have, I think I still have it. There is a film of uh, Marvin Eater doing his muscle control. And uh, while he's doing it and everything, he presses a uh, 110-pound fully loaded adjustable plate-loading barbell, tosses it up in the air, catches it in the uh, crooks of his uh, elbows, and sets it down. That's quite a that feat. Film, that film was made in the late 50s. Another gentleman, uh, John Farbotnik. He was the uh, 1950 AAU Mr. America. And there's a film of him. I had that, I believe I, I have that also. But he was, uh, like I say, on 1950 AAU Mr. America, 1950 Mr. California and Most Muscular, 1950... Uh, Junior Mr. America, 1950 Mr. World, okay? And 1951 Pro Mr. America. Phenomenal. Phenomenal muscle control routine, especially they have one pose where he's flexing his uh, rib cage, and it looks like fingers. It looks like you have your, uh, just imagine your your fingertips uh, uh, together and your fingers spread and and uh, you move your fingers uh you know uh, close them and open them it's just it's a it's, it's unbelievable to see how he can do it i don't know how he can do it but he did that um i don't think there's any introduction needed for john grimmick uh, no john grimmick uh is, is the uh epitome of in my humble opinion of uh such as red bridge park uh, the, the the epitome of not only a bodybuilder but a weightlifter, ungodly strong. He was 1936 senior national heavyweight champion. He participated in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. He was uh, 1940 Mr. America, 1940 most muscular, 1941 Mr. America. At that time, they they changed the ruling, saying that you couldn't uh, you couldn't win the con you couldn't enter the contest uh, uh, after a win because they they felt that if they didn't do that, he would just continue winning. Uh, Nineteen forty six, most muscular man in America, and uh, nineteen forty eight, health and strength, Mister Universe. And uh, 1949, pro Mr. USA. After that, he retired undefeated. Never was beat in bodybuilding. Um, so the the amount of control that they uh, that they gained over their bodies was uh, phenomenal, um, and uh, they were generous in sharing their uh, secrets through their uh, courses and through their uh, writings. Um, oh, I, yeah. I would, 
I really would like to see a lot more attention uh, uh, focused on that. So I'm going to spend a good part of this year doing that. Um, so as long as you can continue talking about it, yeah, that's going to be like one of the subjects that uh, repeat uh, throughout uh, the year because uh, um, now we're at a point uh, in the 21st century where we understand psychosomatic uh, medicine better and we uh, uh, understand uh, the placebo effect. We understand mind over matter. Uh, so uh, I believe that uh, continuing the work of these uh, uh, pioneers who are very result-oriented um, would be a great thing to do. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, and, and, and uh, I firmly believe that since all of the people that I've mentioned were posers, uh, I believe that the muscle control helped them with their posing because they could they could uh, they could call uh, uh, call upon each muscle uh, individually or or in in groups. You know this this was the thing. Uh, of all the modern day muscle control artists, although John Grimmick was excellent at it, Ed Jubinville from uh, he hailed from Holyoke, uh, Massachusetts. He was a bodybuilder, and you may have remembered him from uh, being an e- equipment manufacturer. He was very mm-hmm. famous for that. A lot of guys bought excellent equipment from him. He's very, very strong. And he also uh, was a promoter of arm wrestling. But uh, I, he uh, also did a film of of uh, his... his uh, a uh, type of muscle control, and and again he could uh, you know you watch both back front and what have you, all the different controls that that he could do. Uh, my old friend and I knew, I have either met or known all of these people. Well, not Mazik or Arco, they died before I ever became interested. I knew Baptisti, I knew Coulter, I met Arvin, Marvin Eater, I never met John Forbotnik. Uh, new Grimmick, a new Ed Juvenville. Uh, here's here's a fellow that you're probably familiar with is Sigmund Klein. I've heard from, the name, but I'm not very familiar. So uh... from New York City, he was a gym owner and had a, a direct link to the great Eugene Sandow. Um, his uh, Sandow's uh, uh, manager was uh, Professor uh, uh, Louis Attila, and. Uh, Klein, who was born in uh, Konigsberg, uh, East Prussia, family came here and settled in Cleveland. Klein became interested in uh, uh, gymnastics in high school and eventually uh, obtained a set of barbells. He had to sneak them into the house because his parents didn't want him to didn't want him to lift weights. So anyway, That's one day the weights hit the floor. He had them up in the attic and. Uh, his father went up there and discovered what he was doing. And uh, somehow they came to a, an agreement that he could continue lifting, which he did. And uh, he uh, he submitted a lot of his photographs to Calvert Strength Magazine. And he discovered uh, Attila had a gym in New York City. So he traveled to New York City, but he was a couple of weeks too late. Attila had died. However, mm. he did meet meet his widow and uh, daughter. He fell in love with his daughter, Grace, 
and uh, got married, and he took over the gym. And uh, I had visited the gym back in 1972, a couple of months before it permanently closed. But uh, he was featured in Ripley's, believe it or not, for doing 50 handstand push-ups in eight minutes. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> he... <laughs> He set a professional world record in the military press with 229 pounds at a body weight of 152. That's 150% of his own body weight. He could squat with double body weight with squat stands. Uh, he bent pressed the Louis Sear dumbbell, which weighed 200.5 pounds mm-hmm. at a body weight of 145. And... Uh, he could do 19 consecutive handstand push-ups on a bench. And um, wow. I have seen I have seen his muscle control act in a film. I think I have a film of that too. But he was uh, he was a big fan. He was really the connection between the modern day guys today and the uh, and the old time strongmen. With his gym, he walked into his gym. It was like walking into a, uh, a, you know, a time capsule, so to speak. But uh, another gentleman that you probably would uh, would recognize, especially since you mentioned uh, Charles Atlas earlier this evening, is mm-hmm. a gentleman by by the name of Anton Matasak. Okay. Now Bernard McFadden held a contest. In 1921 and 1922, again, Charles Atlas won both the contests for America's Most Perfectly Developed Man. Well, in 1922, there was also, at the same time that this contest was held, there was another contest called America's Strongest Man. And this contest was won by Anton Matasek in 1922. Now, Matasek was featured in... uh, Alan Calvert's Strength Magazine, Books and Courses, he was in there very much so, uh, 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 demonstrating exercises and what have you. Uh, He also did a course, which I have available, as well as a MAZIC course. And there again, uh, the name of it is Muscle Control Course. (laughs) And it comes with a couple of wall charts. But he gives his, you know, his take on how to develop the controls, each and every one. And uh, puts everybody through the, uh, you know, suggestions, what to do, what not to do. And uh, uh, a lot of them are like shoulder blade controls, uh, isolation of the pecs, uh, isolation of the traps, uh, isolation and spreading of the lats, control of the bicep, depression of the abdominal muscles, um, and you know it, it just goes through a lot of these uh, a lot of these controls later on in life he became a uh, a police officer in Baltimore Maryland that's wow. where he was from yeah i thought you like that because a lot of people have heard of atlas of course but yes. you know at the same time there was another contest it held it you know the same the same uh, probably on a weekend and but you never hear of Matasak. Because he didn't have the promotion and the uh, uh, a guy like Charles Roman uh, behind yes. him. 
you probably talked to Jeffrey Hogue about that. Yes, uh, Jeffrey Hogue is a very close uh, friend of mine. I just spoke with him uh, the other day, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I've been, I'm actually involved uh, with the Atlas Company. I, I help out with special projects every now and then, and mm-hmm. uh, um, I've been to Charles Atlas HQ on many an occasion, and I'll be going there uh, this coming week, and they have like a mini yeah. museum in there. They have the, the bar that he bent, his uh, leopard posing trunks, you know, so it's a really uh, interesting oh, thing. Yeah. A, a letter oh, that Gandhi wrote to Charles Atlas. So th- there's lots of oh, interesting yeah. things there. Uh, but yes, he's uh, my desk actually there is Charles Atlas's desk, and I think my chair belonged to uh, uh, Mr. Roman. So I've heard tons of stories, really fascinating stuff. You uh, you have Mr. Roman's chair and, and desk. Um, I believe that the desk that I sit at when I go there to do work is Charles Atlas's oh. desk, and uh, yeah. I believe the chair I use when I'm there was Mr. Roman's chair. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of history behind everything there. Oh, yeah. Well, Roman was, uh, you know, uh, uh, you have to understand. You know? A promoter, yeah. Well, I, here's the thing. Uh, you okay. probably know Atlas didn't write the course. There was right. another fellow that wrote the course. I don't know if they tell you, Dr. Frederick Tilney, who I knew back in the 70s. He wrote the course. Uh, uh, Atlas actually, you know, won the two contests, and he won a lot of money. He won $1,000, and imagine that what that's worth today, in, you know, back then in 1922. Right. And uh, he wanted to put together a course, and uh, he had the ideas, but he wasn't that adept at, uh, at, at writing uh the courses, you know, putting the words down. And uh, he wasn't that good at uh, at uh, uh, advertising. And, and here's where uh, Frederick Tilney came in with it. And and uh, uh, they partnered up. And, uh, and they, there's a story behind it, but uh, I'll explain it to you another time. But, but, but nevertheless... Uh, Later I've heard on. a different version of it, uh, I'm sure, but uh, yeah, I'd like to hear it off the air another time. Yeah, uh, but but needless to say, uh, um, uh, he was very successful with it. But then uh, a gentleman came along. Uh, uh, he was a young advertising uh, 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 man at a, uh, a big advertising yeah. institution there in New York, Madison Avenue Advertising, and he wanted to, uh, you know cut his teeth on a, on a real good project. So he took on the Atlas uh, account. And uh, that's where you get the 97-pound weakling, and that's where you get the uh, Mac got uh, sand kicked in his face and all that stuff. That's all through Charles Roman. And uh, Charles yeah, Roman... Uh, a genius, yeah. Yeah, he, he, developed, he developed the course and added the... Uh, the uh, bonus uh, courses on a variety of different subjects, and and uh, he put together all the ads that you see in the back of comic books and popular uh-huh. mechanics and and all that stuff, you know, boys magazines and all that. And of course, it played on the uh, on the uh, uh, insecurities of a teenager, you know, being mm-hmm. shy and want to be better in sports, and you know, this is an ongoing pro- process, and right. uh, uh, which was, you know a pretty good safe assumption that if a teenager, say 14 years old, 13, 14 years old started, you know, doing any type of exercise at all, he's going to get stronger whether he does anything, you know? So 
while he's doing the course, he will automatically think, well, the course is building my body up. Well, yes, it is. But it's getting a lot of help, seeing as how you're <laughs> you're a teenager and you're growing, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, he. Uh, I just thought I would uh, I would bring that up. Uh, another gentleman out of England was an Alan P. Mead, who was a uh, uh, also a uh, muscle control artist and a bodybuilder and a gymnast. Uh, he was very popular, and he did the muscle control. Uh, William Oliphant. Uh, it's like elephant, only spelled with an A. Uh, uh-huh. Oliphant. And uh, he was a weightlifter, a muscle control expert. And and uh, he was the founder of the oldest continually operating gym in uh, North America. It's up in Canada, Toronto, Canada. And uh, I had contact with, uh, with the old man himself. He, he opened the gym in 1913. <laughs> and it's still there, and it's still going. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's uh, you know it's got the old globe type weights in it and stuff like that. Of course, he's long gone, and I believe his son has passed. And I think it's like the grandson has it now. I've always that, wanted to make a, a trip thing. up there. I love those old gyms. Uh, when I lived in uh, New York, um, I used to exercise at the Olympia Gym. Uh, oh yeah. And Arnold would exercise there. Uh, Al Fives uh, owned it. And uh, oh, yeah. well, you know, and uh, Al- exercise there, and some of the old uh, greats uh, had exercise there. Al Fives was a good friend of, uh, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Vic Boff and uh, no, uh, Sigmund Klein. They uh, Sigmund Vic Klein, Boff started the uh, the uh, old time banquet, uh, the old time strongman and uh, 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 bodybuilder banquet in. Uh, uh, it's now held in New York. Uh, Newark, New Jersey. Al Fives was a member of that, and what have you. Uh, when uh, Al I haven't heard uh, from Al, and like I haven't really been down that way in decades. I don't know. Uh, I usually follow a lot of these guys. Um, geez, uh, you got me. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um. Another uh, um, man that was very good at muscle control, what have you, and he partnered up with Mazik, and that's Montesaldo. His real name was Alfred Montague Wollaston, <laughs> but he had a uh, stage name of Montesaldo. And he actually apprenticed under the great Eugene Sandow for a time. He was only five foot five tall and 144 pounds. You notice that a lot of these, just about all of these guys are not very big. (laughs) They have very small. He was extremely strong. His best bent press was 230 pounds. And his best one-hand dumbbell swing was 150 pounds. And this was in 1912. Uh, He was... uh, like I say, he, he uh, uh, teamed up with uh, Mazik, and they had a course uh, called Max Alding. It's an English course. Again, there's something you can do a little research on and discover what that's about. I've got a copy of it around here somewhere. But you get several charts, you know, uh-huh. and you get pages of, uh, you know, all the uh, different exercises and what have you. Now, the final one I'd like to discuss is uh, none other than Eugene Sandow. He was okay. an exponent of uh, muscle control. 
and uh, he posed in the uh, late 19th century. Uh, what he would do is he would pose in a, uh, he was a stage performer, you know, this is vaudeville, and you had the big curtain and what have you in the dark stage, and uh, uh, he would do his lifting of the weights and what have you, and possibly a pony and card tearing and stuff like that, and then suddenly the stage would go dark, pitch black, and the curtains would open, and there was a box all black inside and it had little lights inside this box and there was what appeared to be a statue a white statue in this box and if you stared at it long enough you'd realize it was starting to move and that was Sandow what they would wow. do is they would they would cover him with white powder with a white powder and the black pitch black background inside that cabinet and the lights it was awesome, okay? And this brought the house down. Everyone went crazy about that. That was his big uh, big performing type thing. Sandow realized that although he was strong, he couldn't, you know, they, it's, the, it's the old saying, you have to choose your own battles, you know what I mean? And you, mm-hmm. you, never, you never try to beat a man at his own game. And a no. lot of the uh, stage performers back then had their own pet lift, like, for example, Thomas Inch had the unliftable uh, inch dumbbell. Uh, Saxon had his uh, his barbell. Okay, and there was a certain way you had you you had to learn to lift it, or you couldn't. Um, um, uh, Charles Rolando, uh, out of France, it was uh, nineteen. Uh, I want to say nineteen twenty-four. Olympic gold medalist. He had a special uh, bar, uh, globe uh, barbell, but the mm-hmm. bar itself was a special tensile strength where it would whip, okay? And you had to practice with that to, to be able to lift it, not because of the weight, but because of the way it behaved. You know, if you pulled up on it too quickly, it would start to whip and it would fight, a, you know, it would work against you. So Sandow realized that, you know, he only weighed, uh, you know, uh, about 190 pounds. And uh, for him to go up against the likes of, say, Louis Sear or Saxon, he went up against, uh, you know, Saxon one time. And, uh, and they had a feud over that. And he decided that uh, he was best. His real forte was posing. Like I said earlier, with the with the black box and the white powder and what have you, so he could mm-hmm. he could do all those things, and he did it better than anybody else. And so then he traveled all over Europe. He was in America a couple times. He went to San Francisco, um, and he had uh, in Los Angeles. He had photographs taken by George Steckel, one of the renowned photographs out there. He had photographs taken by uh, B.J. Falk. Uh, uh, in uh, New York and uh, Napoleon Sarani. These were these were photographers in New York that did photographs of all the uh, uh, high-end people, all the well-heeled people in New York and royalty and, and what have you. The, uh, 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 Warwick in uh, uh, Australia and uh, uh, several uh, 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 photographers in uh, in England. And so 
that was his thing. But his muscle control act, from what I, I, uh, um, I have seen, and you can see it too if you go on the Internet, it was done uh, uh, by uh, none other than Thomas Edison. When Edison was uh, just starting out, his, uh, his uh, motion picture film. Mm-hmm. And you can see there's two different films. I have a copy of, I have a 16 millimeter copy of each. This is way before, uh, you know, the videos and stuff like that. I got my copies in the early 70s from abroad. And uh, you can see him posing. And one, uh, near the end, he does a backward somersault, lands on his feet, and crosses his arms. Very impressive. Wow. But that's his, that uh, that was his posing. And you should all the stuff you're sharing here. You should put it into books because uh, uh, you're an aficionado of uh, uh, physical culture and you're a historian. Uh, these are all awesome stories that you're sharing here, uh, Bill. It's, it's phenomenal. I probably should. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that'd be awesome because uh, I you're you're a natural born storyteller. You know, you draw the person in and you give them a lot of facts, but you also give them like the essence of the people that you're talking about in their time. So, uh, yeah, that, that would make an awesome series of books. Well, thank you very kindly. I I I, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, the the thing is, uh, another thing about all these people, uh, you'll notice that they weren't just bodybuilders, they weren't just weightlifters. Many of them were hand balancers. Many of them were uh, uh, seasoned performers, okay? And, mm-hmm. and this is important to know because they all developed something called, like you said uh, earlier, they were visionaries. They could focus his mind over matter, practice, mm-hmm. practice, practice, you know. You know, um, uh, how do you get better in something? You continually do it. Do whatever right. you want to get better at, and you get, eventually you get faster, better, okay, and and uh, 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 more adept at, 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 at doing whatever uh, uh, physical or even mental endeavor that you attempt to do. and And that's what... Uh, all of these people had going for them. You know, the ones that I knew and I talked to, they it goes by different names. You know, you could say mind over matter. You can say vision. You could say concentration. You know, uh, many of the bodybuilders, you've heard them say that they don't want to be interrupted. Some of them mm-hmm. don't want any music on. You'll see that many times they'll close their eyes. What do you think they're thinking about? They're thinking about the muscle. And and working on developing, reinforcing the uh, the uh, neuromuscular pathways, so to speak, and uh, this is where the muscle control, uh, you know, becomes uh, uh, prevalent by mm-hmm. not only becoming stronger, but you are uh, uh, developing that pathway where you have control over that specific function. For example, if you're doing a bicep control, okay, there's two ways. Right. You're going to hit, you're going to, uh, uh, um, uh, concentric and eccentric, okay? You're going to go up with the bar, with the, uh, say, dumbbell, 
and you're going to mm-hmm. go back down with a dumbbell, okay? Uh-huh. And uh, these are the things that these uh, that that these men were most accomplished at. They could uh, they could move any you know the entire. There's there's a film of uh, of uh, Grimmick doing uh, his muscle control act outdoors at a York picnic, okay? Mm-hmm. And he's uh, standing there in a uh, a two strap affair, and it has a lifting belt on. And he's got these shoes. I don't know why, why he wore these shoes, but they're white, and they have a, uh, an elevated heel. And he was doing some lifting with a, with a, uh, a plate-loaded barbell and set it down. <clears throat> and uh, he was also doing uh, kick-ups, okay, where you mm-hmm. go uh, you know, back on your back and you just kick up and stand up. He's doing that, and then he went into his muscle control act, okay, a brief act. He did, you know, several controls. Well, he turned his back. You know, he would he would do an abdominal vacuum, facing the uh, facing the people, and he would turn from side to side, and uh-huh. then he would do, uh, you know, the shoulders, the traps, and uh, 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 he would do dislocates with his uh, with his shoulders, uh, with the, with the, with the uh, uh, scapula, okay, and then he would do. Uh, uh, um, the uh, quadriceps, the calves, and then when he's done doing each one individually, then he would start muscle controlling all of them. And he was, it was, he would, uh, it was, it's almost like all of his muscles were dancing, and he's going up and down on his heels, and he's vibrating, you know, ac- across the ground. I mean, it was, I've never seen anything like that before since. All of the films I've seen, I've never seen anybody do that that quickly and in that much control. I talked to Grimmick back in the uh, 80s, <clears throat> and I said, how come you never, uh, you know, put together a, a muscle control film, you know, of your entire routine or posing routine or anything like that? He says, well, when I was in Europe, I bought an expensive movie camera. And I always planned on doing it, but it's one of those things. I just never got around to it. Well, he was raising a family, had six kids and what have you. And uh-huh. uh, he just never did it. But he was never one to, even all the correspondence that I have from him, he never uh, he never had his own stationery. He would many times use York stationery, York barbell with a box number. I think it was box 1707 or something off, off the top of my head. And uh, uh-huh. he would uh, either that or he would use just a piece of eight and a half by eleven paper, and you could tell some of the paper was was old, you know, because it was uh, like browned around the edges. And uh, he had a manual typewriter <laughs> at home, you know, and uh, a couple of the keys would stick. So when he was finished with the letter. You know, he would type it on one. I have several that are typed on one side, then typed on the other side. And then he would turn the paper sideways, and he'd type along the margin there. Or he would, uh, when he was done, he would uh, go. He would reread the letter, and he would make the corrections where the key stuck. Or if he had another thought, he would add that in handwriting. Oh, yeah, it was, he, he, he didn't take himself as, as serious as a lot of the guys do. He was very humble. One of the most humble uh, 
bodybuilders I've ever met. He, you know, you'd ask him a question about training and stuff. He's, you know, you could tell he get bored. And and, uh, but he was also very helpful. He was very kind, uh, and uh, he, he had a wealth of information. Actually, as you could read in the old muscular development magazines or strength and health, he was quite a guy, and uh, I liked him. He was uh, he was just like a next door neighbor, you know. Uh, that is awesome. Yep. But he was, uh, like like many of them, he said a lot of it is mind over matter. You have to concentrate on what you're doing. Select the exercises for the body part that you want to do and uh, do the exercise. If you feel like doing uh, X number of uh, reps, then do them. But he said don't train to exhaustion. He was never a big fan of that. He says always you know, have a little in the tank, you know. That, and if you go into the gym common, and you don't feel like doing it, don't do it. Even Paul Anderson, uh, in uh, the stuff I've read about him, he, he recommended the same thing: never do it to, you know, never do your exercise to no. uh, exhaustion. You know, just always have no. a reserve there so you can do more exercises. Yeah, it, the whole thing, uh, Hercules, is that it, 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 whatever you do, okay, one thing that has to be has to worm its way into your brain is that it has to be progressive. Mm -hmm. In other words, add resistance, even if it's ever so slightly. Alan Calvert, with his shot-loading globe dumbbells, shot. You're talking grams, ounces, you know, not a one-and-a-quarter plate, pound plate, you know. Uh, He would always suggest ever so slight increases in resistance. So that's one way. Another way is add a uh, a repetition. Repetitions, yeah. So now you have two ways. The third way is cut the time. Okay? Mm -hmm. So there's three ways. The fourth is tighten up your form. Yeah, intensity. Okay. I think I, I think I mentioned these to you before. The other thing is recuperation. Every now and then. Yeah, recuperation or rest between, uh, depending about what you're doing, rest between uh, repetitions, or or rest between sets, or lengthen the rest between exercise sessions. In other words. Especially if you're, you know, starting to accumulate a lot of birthdays, (laughs) (laughs) you will notice that if you train on a Monday, you skip Tuesday, you walk into your gym on Wednesday and you say, I really don't feel like doing this, then don't. Pack it up, forget about it, the next day, Thursday, Walk into your gym. You'll be surprised. Mm-hmm. All you needed is two days rest in between exercise sessions. I've given this advice to so many people, and so many people have contacted me. They said they tried it, and after three or four weeks, they said they couldn't believe the difference. Hey, don't feel like you're the Lone Ranger. You know, you're, like I said, you're getting up in years. You need the rest. So rest after six weeks. Take a week off. Come back. 
you can start doing the same exercises with the same weight. If the weight is too much, and you'll know if it is when you first, you know, after you're warmed up, when you in that first rep, if the weight is too much, cut 10%. Cut all your weight 10%. Okay? And then uh-huh. continue on. That's a good way to get by plateau, what they like to say is plateaus or sticking points. You'll hit the proverbial wall where you just can't, can't seem to progress anymore. That's one good way to do it. Your body needs to recuperate. Notice I didn't say anything about sleep. Uh-huh. Recuperation is recuperation is different, okay? You can get a lot of sleep in the world and still be stressed out. Something can be bothering right. you, okay? So it's a matter of recuperate. And when you're training, you're training. When you're not training, forget about this stuff. Don't dwell on it. In other words, in your day off and you're not supposed to be fooling around with weights, don't even think about it. Okay, because it will start to stress you. Enjoy your family. Enjoy uh, uh, maybe you have a hobby or, or uh, you know, visit friends or relatives or whatever you do. Stay away from the weights. I've seen too many people dive into it and say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this to the best of my ability. And they just go into it whole hog and fall flat. And that's just how it is, you know. Uh that, that to me, in a nutshell, uh, is is the key. Progression. You have to progress. If you're lifting the same weight day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, the only thing you've accomplished is possibly reinforcing your your neuro, you know, muscular pathways, and and uh, confirm to your body and everyone else that you can lift X number of pounds. <laughs> in that particular exercise. But you're not progressing. Right. You have to progress. Sometimes you have to trick your body. You can do it any number of ways. The proverbial three sets of eight, uh, three sets of ten, uh, uh, two sets, uh, uh, 12 reps, uh, uh, five reps, uh, singles. Uh, it doesn't make any difference as long as you're doing something, something different above and beyond what you did yesterday to become stronger tomorrow. That's how it works, like anything else, you know, and you become better and faster at whatever it is, you know, whether it be mental, whether it be physical, uh, swinging a bat, catching a football. Uh, it, it, it doesn't make any difference. Imagine the, uh, the time and dedication and discipline it is uh, to be a uh, – uh, an Olympic uh, athlete, you know, it's a, it's the same thing. You you do it until you get to the point where you can do it in your sleep. It just comes automatic. It it you know you you don't have to think about it because you're you're uh, 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 you're performing movements in split seconds. You know, and and again, uh, uh, the the muscles come to, uh, especially when you're training like bodybuilding or weightlifting. When you walk into your gym after your allotted time of uh, recuperation, you walk into the gym, and you, uh, you'll you notice that your muscles will feel like they want to do this. Uh-huh. Think about that. If you have that in your head, if you feel that, if you feel like you want to do this, it's like, I feel invigorated and I want to do this, then you know your muscles want to do that. But if you go in there and... 
you just your muscles just don't want to do it. You can feel it. You know what I'm talking about. It's not yes, really a fatigue, but it's a it's a uh, the, the, the as far as muscles can have enthusiasm, it's just not there. You know. And and that's what you need. That that's what you're driving at, and that's what you thrive on, are those particular things. Um, and again, this this this, this this all goes back to to mind over matter, and the uh, which is uh, a key to being successful at uh, at muscle control. I've even incorporated uh, like ankle weights and wrist weights and light dumbbells into my Charles Atlas routines, you know, and sure. the Charles Atlas system is basically non, uh, you know, except for a chair, you don't really need anything else uh, to do them. Right. But I found it with the ankle and the wrist weights and dumbbells. Uh, and uh, I've even incorporated like hand grips and springs and all sorts of stuff just to give my body that variety and that, that extra resistance. Yes. Because you're right, you get stale, you get stagnant, you don't progress. Yes. You run a circle rather than yes. spiraling up. Variety is key because your body will, you know, <clears throat> we didn't, uh, you know, I don't know how long you think humans have been on, you know, on earth, but I'll tell you this. Uh, you know, we just didn't pop up out of the ground. We've been here a long, long, long time. time. And the reason we've been here is because we adapt. Your body adapts readily. You have to adapt or you will die out. You will become extinct. Okay, people say, well, you know, we're vegetarians or we're meat eaters exclusively. No, we're omnivores. And uh, I've had this discussion with people, and they, they say, well, why do you feel that way? I says the most important thing you have to remember, okay, is 100 years ago, 200 years ago, there wasn't a grocery store on every corner. You grew your right. own food, okay? Mm-hmm. And if you had a bad year, bad crop, I mean, you can do everything right. It could have been a famine. Guess what? You've got to move. You've got to follow the food. Okay? In fact, when my grandparents were alive, okay, in the wintertime, you didn't get an orange. You didn't go down to the grocery store and get an orange. There was no refrigeration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't invented until the 1930s, and it wasn't really available. Okay? So summertime is when you got them because that's when they were shipped up from Florida. I'm in Michigan, Okay. And so what they did was they canned a lot of their food. But my point is this. The whole, the most important thing about nutrition is availability. Right. You know, Japanese people, why do they have a diet high in fish? They're surrounded with water. Because there's a lot of fish, yeah. (laughs) And they've got rice patties everywhere, okay? So what are you going to do? We have milk in the United States. We have American, you know, farmers and what. We have cows, Okay. Go to Italy and try to order a glass of milk. They'll laugh at you. Why? Because they're knee-deep in grapes, so they grow wine. It's part of their culture. It's part of their tradition. Germany, beer, okay? You go to South America, they eat their particular types of food. Why? It's available. All right? So availability is, is, is the key, and a lot of it is brought up through culture, Whatever your culture, uh, it's handed down generation after generation, tradition. You know, like the proverbial uh, 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 
turkey at Thanksgiving and the goose at Christmas time. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Many people, it's the only time of the year they eat that. So it's just a tradition. Okay. So it's constantly perpetuated. But but that is the key to it um, is is availability. Uh, there are many uh, many animals that will eat uh, whatever's available. They prefer, you know, say vegetables or fruits. But if there's no vegetables or fruits and there's something running around on the ground, sorry, pal, your lunch. Your lunch. <laughs> And on that note, we need to end our uh, journey for today. Uh, Thank you again very much for your stories, for your insights, for your advice, uh, for your company and conversation. I I greatly look forward to these times, Bill, and I'm looking forward to next uh, month already. Uh, What I'd like to do next month is to... Um, to focus on what you have uh, in on your website so that people can order things and uh, experiment with them because uh, you have a treasure trove of things uh, there. Um, and then we could talk about other things, uh, uh, you know, uh, as we've been doing. But uh, you have so much to offer to people, and uh, we'd, I'd like to focus on all the things that you have to offer. Well, thank you. So, well, again, uh, thank you, you very much. Go ahead. Okay. You can uh, go to my website, superstrengthtraining.com. I have uh, boxes on each sign-up boxes for my free daily uh, newsletters. Sign up, and you'll get more of the same. And it's all incredibly awesome. And uh, uh, even exploring the site is like exploring a museum. So it's a fun visit. Uh, The newsletter is free, and I highly recommend it. And there's a lot of really interesting uh, stuff that uh, you can find there. So um, until next time, this is Hercules and Bill wishing you all a happy new year. And uh, this conversation will most definitely be continued. Thank you very kindly. Have a great evening. You too, Bill. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.